0: So thank you very much. I'm uh, delighted to be here and to have this opportunity to speak with you about uh, approaching Vajrayana as a Westerner, which is always an interesting (laughs) question. Is there really a difference between approaching it as a Westerner or approaching it as anybody as a human being, but uh, putting that aside of uh, are we actually special? Do we need some special way of uh, entering it? We need to look first at what actually is Tantra and the word Tantra coming from uh, uh, translated into Tibetan as gyu means a stream of continuity, stream of continuity that goes on forever and we can speak about that from a basis point of view, a path point of view and a resultant point of view so on the basis level, we're speaking about the uh, continuity of the Buddha nature factors, that uh, these are something which uh, have no beginning and have uh, and go on and on until they transform into Buddhahood. Although that's not inevitable that they uh, will. We have to put in a great deal of effort into that. When we speak about the Buddha nature factors, we're talking about those factors which will uh, transform into the bodies of a Buddha. In other words, these are the working materials that will uh, enable us to become a Buddha and which will transform into the body and mind of a Buddha. So what are we actually referring to here? We're referring to what's usually called the two collections. The I prefer to call them two networks. It's not as though we're collecting stamps or something like that. but. Uh, they are networks of, uh, usually translated as, merit and uh, wisdom. I prefer positive force and uh, deep awareness for uh, various reasons. We're building up a positive force, like a charge, from our, uh, the positive things or constructive things that uh, we do, and on a basis level, these give rise to the body and mind of a future samsaric state what we're experiencing now, what we experience in future lives. So this is the basis. This is samsara and uh, uncontrollably recurring rebirth. And this is what uh, will go on forever unless we do something to put an end to it. Uh, We also have uh, in terms of uh, Buddha nature, these factors, we have the conventional and deepest nature of the mind, which uh, also will allow us to become uh, a Buddha basis for samsara as well as nirvana. Then on the path, what we do in Tantra is to uh, try to have arising from these uh, networks, the uh, body and uh, mind of uh, a deity, the Yidam. That uh, is uh, also something which uh, can go on. There's an everlasting stream of continuity They don't change their forms. You know, Chenrezig doesn't get old. Chenrezig doesn't need to eat or uh, anything like that. So uh, it's something that can go on with uh, continuity. And the mind would be the mind that uh, has an understanding of bodhicitta, voidness or emptiness, etc. So this is the tantra, the continuity of the path. And then on the resultant level, we have the everlasting continuity of the form bodies and dharmakaya, mind of the Buddha. This also uh, is something which will go on with uh, no end. So that's the meaning of uh, the word tantra. If you look at it at this uh, very standard way of uh, understanding basis, path and result. But uh, tantra also has a second meaning uh, coming from the Sanskrit which is uh, that it is a loom on which you weave many things. You know, a loom is what you weave uh, a rug or a cloth on. And uh, so uh, the, uh, uh, these uh, practices that we do in uh, Tantra are things which uh, allow us to weave together all the various uh, insights and understandings that we have developed in the sutra path. And this is represented by the uh, Buddha figures. The Buddha figures are like uh, infographics in which uh, each of the various arms and faces and legs and all these sort of things, what they're holding, represent different uh, uh, levels of uh, meaning. In other words, what they represent would be like, for instance, the four arms of Chenrezig, uh, avalokiteshvara are the four immeasurable attitudes, love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. So what uh, we try to do in uh, Tantra is to put together everything that we have uh, learned and mastered to a certain degree in Sutra so that it all fits together in one state of mind. That uh, is one of the reasons why it's uh, quite advanced. It's extremely difficult to uh, do uh, if we uh, haven't already trained ourselves very well in uh, all the different aspects that uh, we learn in sutra. Also, uh, another way of uh, explaining tantra as opposed to sutra is that uh, sutra is uh, described as the causal path and tantra as a res- the resultant path. In other words, uh, in uh, sutra practices, we are emphasizing the causes putting our emphasis on the causes for attaining the bodies of a Buddha. So for instance, uh, if we look at the 32 major signs and 80 minor signs of the uh, physical body of a Buddha, then uh, we have all the causal practices that uh, are uh, leading to, as a result, these uh, different aspects of a Buddha body. So even in Sutra, we have uh, a form of infographics if uh, you really want to uh, look at it on a non superficial level. So for instance, uh, a Buddha has uh, a very, very long tongue. And this is uh, representative of uh, caring for others with as much affection and care as a mother animal has for licking her young. And so to represent this cause, then a Buddha has a long tongue. So if one is uh, aware of uh, all these 32 and 80, 112 factors uh, with a Buddha, this is even more complicated than an actual uh, yidam with uh, uh, its various uh, features. So we are emphasizing the causes for in sutra, you know, affection to others like a mother animal to the young, as a way for uh, attaining body of a Buddha body and mind of of a Buddha. So it's causal practices, sutra. Tantra, on the other hand, is the resultant practice because uh, we uh, imagine ourselves already as uh, a Buddha figure, a Yidam. I uh, don't like to use the word deity so much because uh, this uh, brings up all sorts of associations (laughs) of either a creator god on the one hand or the... uh, Uh, ancient Greek gods or the Hindu gods, which uh, are not at all the image that we want to, or the association that we want to bring up when we think of these yidams. Word yidam, by the way. Um, Very interesting how uh, this was uh, translated. Uh, Yidam in uh, uh, Tibetan. Yi is for mind and tam is for tamsik, So something that uh, makes a close association Tamsik is the Sanskrit samaya, to make a close association for your mind to achieve the body of a Buddha, body and mind of a Buddha. So that's a yidam, whereas in Sanskrit, uh, they uh, call it an ishta devata, which devata is a deity, that's why it's usually translated it, but it is more than just a, it's not exactly the same word as the gods um, on Mount Meru. And Ishta is one that fulfills your wishes, it's to be wished for. So this is the way that it is uh, derived in Sanskrit. But anyway, we have these uh, uh, Buddha figures, and we imagine that uh, we have already arisen in that form of uh, a Buddha figure, of an enlightened being, while knowing full well that we're not ye- there yet. You know It's not uh, some sort of uh, you know, weird schizophrenic uh, uh, trip, <laughs> which we imagine, you know, and somebody running around, you know, I'm Tara or I'm Chenrezig, uh, it is based uh, totally on uh, the understanding of and the uh, generation already of Bodhicitta. What is Bodhicitta? Bodhicitta is a mind which is aimed at our own future enlightenment, which uh, we haven't attained yet but uh, which we can attain on the basis of these Buddha nature factors. So we're looking down the line of our mental uh, continuum at uh, a point which hasn't happened yet, but can happen if we put in the work to achieve, uh, uh, to attain Buddhahood, that these networks that we're speaking about can be the basis and transform into the bodies of the Buddha. And we're imagining that we're there yet. But we're fully aware that it hasn't actually happened yet. That so is very important. But it can happen, and so we arise in uh, this type of uh, form. So this is uh, what's known as the resultant state, the uh, resultant type of uh, practice. And even though we haven't achieved the uh, full mind of a, of a Buddha, you know, the obscurations are all removed. We have you know, non-conceptual cognition of the two truths at the same time, you know, emptiness or voidness and pure appearance, etc. We don't have all of that yet. But nevertheless, we have something. It's not that we pretend that we have it on the basis of nothing. We have to uh, imagine that we have that on the basis of some level of generation of bodhicitta and voidness. Bodhicitta being supported... By compassion, love, etc. So, this is the resultant path, and it's very important to understand that. Now, here's the issue that uh, comes up when uh, you ask is there a special way of uh, practicing Vajrayana for Westerners? How do we approach it as a, a Westerner? And for most of us, We uh, don't really have uh, the cultural background which would uh, give us the support for automatically believing, for instance, in, specifically I should say, in rebirth, reincarnation, past and future lives. And so when we look at the actual teachings of uh, dharma, The dividing line between whether we're doing something worldly or uh, something dharmic is whether or not we're doing something for future lives. So it's very clear that uh, that is considered the starting point for a uh, Dharma practice. So here we are as Westerners, and uh, we're very skeptical about uh, rebirth Uh, at best, I should say, we're skeptical rather than being antagonistic and saying this is nonsense and uh, totally rejecting it. And uh, that leads us to what uh, I have uh, coined as phrases dharma-light and the real thing dharma. And uh, dharma-light I define as a practice of uh, Buddhism which is uh, solely aimed at improving this lifetime. And uh, this is a way that uh, I think if we sincerely uh, examine ourselves, am I really doing this in order to improve my future lives, that uh, many of us would find that, uh, uh, although we might say that deep inside, we don't really feel that in a uh, a gut-level emotional uh, state. And this is fine. This is fine. If uh, this is the level that we're at, then we can certainly benefit a great deal from uh, the Buddhist practice. But we need to acknowledge that the real thing dharma is with the whole picture of future lives. And uh, future lives are uh, very important in terms of, uh, if you talk about the three scopes of uh, aim or motivation, it's presented in the Lamrim, Rim, The Greatest Stages of the Path. Initial level is to improve future lives. The intermediate level is to attain liberation. Liberation from what? Uncontrollably recurring rebirth. When you look at the 12 links of dependent arising, what is that describing? It's describing how rebirth works. Samsaric rebirth and how to reverse that. How to gain liberation from that. So the... Uh, ind- it Intermediate level is likewise uh, based, as the initial level is, on rebirth. Whole uh, understanding of karma is based on rebirth because uh, most of the things that we do in this lifetime don't actually ripen in this lifetime. You know, why is it that uh, these uh, incredible high lamas and yogis and masters in Tibet were thrown in concentration camps? You know, when the Chinese uh, came into uh, Tibet, that becomes very, very difficult to understand. And, you know, why are some dictators, uh, you know, uh, committing all sorts of atrocities and they live a life of luxury? So, uh, again, uh, without uh, thinking in terms of rebirth and, you know, long-term consequences of what we do, the whole presentation of karma becomes very problematic. So... Initial scope, intermediate scope, advanced scope, is to attain enlightenment in order to help everybody to overcome uncontrollably recurring rebirth, samsara. So this is the real thing, dharma. Fine, we make this differentiation, and I think that uh, what's important as uh, practitioners of dharma light um, is uh, that we uh, acknowledge that It's not the real thing. In other words, we don't reduce the Buddhist teachings to just something that uh, is to uh, improve this lifetime. But we say that uh, I don't quite understand rebirth, but I am open to that idea. As I develop further and further my understanding, I will examine it again. So we leave the door open. We have respect for it. but we acknowledge that I'm not there yet. That's perfectly fine. That's being completely honest. And it uh, allows us to uh, grow with the Dharma and to think more and more deeply as we progress. Does this, these teachings on reincarnation, do they make any sense? And they will only make sense if we have an understanding of the voidness or emptiness of the self, of the person. Otherwise, we are thinking of rebirth in a way that the Buddhists would reject, you know, that we have a soul that, uh, you know, goes from one rebirth to another or a me, a self, that, you know, some solid thing. And now, you know, uh, my name is Alex. Alex is reborn as Fifi the poodle, you know, something like that. And uh, (laughs) this is uh, not quite what Buddhism would uh, accept. So to really understand rebirth, you really have to understand the whole presentation of the self and the emptiness or voidness of the self to understand what Buddhism is talking about. So fine. That uh, is saying already that this is very advanced for us to uh, actually understand uh, the whole process of uh, reincarnation. So fine. Then we have uh, the uh, issue. That uh, if we are practitioners of Dharma Light, how do we proceed? Another thing that I should add is that uh, this presentation of Dharma Light and real thing Dharma is, uh, uh, fits in very nicely with uh, the approach that His Holiness the Dalai Lama has been making uh, in terms of uh, speaking that, uh, about Buddhism in terms of three aspects. He says there's... Uh, um, buddhist uh science and that's dealing with uh the uh, uh perception theory um the uh, whole uh, presentation of uh uh logic these sort of things that are uh, you know the presentation of uh how universes uh, have no beginning no you know end multiple type of uh presentation and so on there's buddhist science there's buddhist philosophy which gets into uh, the whole understanding of uh, uh, voidness, and particularly how a lot of these teachings fit very closely with uh, uh, quantum physics and the findings of quantum physics or the consequences of quantum physics. And then there's Buddhist religion, and that's where you have rebirth and uh, uh, all the devotional type of uh, practices. And uh, for when we speak in terms of Buddhist science and Buddhist philosophy, that uh, these are things which uh, are open to anybody, that can be of benefit to uh, anybody, so that fits very well in terms of uh, Dharma light. And Buddhist religion, well, that gets into the real thing. So this uh, way of uh, dividing or looking at the uh, teachings, whether from uh, this uh, three-point, three-part vision, explanation that his holiness uses or this dharma light versus real thing dharma they are quite uh, harmonious with each other so how do we practice uh uh, tantra as practitioners of dharma light yes you have a question yes we will have a question and answer session after lunch yeah yes that would be better Whether we are practitioners of Tantra light or real thing Tantra, it is, uh, I think, very essential that uh, we uh, practice a a ngundro, preliminary practices, that uh, this is uh, the basis, the foundation for Tantra. This we find in any presentation of Tantra, and there's no reason to discard that or disregard that as uh, Westerners. Often <laughs> as Westerners, of course, we want to get things cheaply. We want to get a bargain. So we'll bargain with the teacher. You know, well, can I get away with only doing this many or uh, like that? But uh, that's really not the uh, uh, way in which uh, we will be able to uh, practice in the most beneficial manner. So. Wendro. something that comes before, literally, uh, in uh, if we look at the word, and there are uh, two aspects of that. There's the uncommon and the common. Actually, I should have said it the other way around: the common and the uncommon preliminaries. Common means uh, what you know. Sometimes gives a you know an incorrect connotation that well that's sort of ordinary you know the little people practice that you know I don't need that but uh, it uh, really means uh, shared it is what is shared between Sutra and uh, Tantra and the uncommon or unshared are those practices which are uh, specifically intended for uh, Tantra although they really aren't bad to uh, do for Sutra as well very helpful So, the problem, if you think about it, is that uh, we have beginning of this lifetime. Well, that's the real thing, Dharma, beginning of this lifetime. But uh, even if we think only in terms of this lifetime, we have lived quite a lot of years before uh, we get involved with uh, any sort of tantra practice. And so that means that we have built up a tremendous uh, habit of uh, thinking in negative ways or thinking in ignorant ways, ways that uh, don't accord with reality. We are so caught up in our fantasies, uh, our projections, and so on, that, uh, and uh, selfishness and uh, self-centeredness and anger and all sorts of disturbing emotions and so on. So this is something which is uh, very deeply ingrained in ourselves of uh, one of the very uh, uh, helpful guidelines that uh, some of the great teachers say is to uh, examine your lifetime and consider how many negative states of mind and Harmful, destructive actions that you've done over your entire lifetime, how many times you've yelled at somebody, lost your temper, been clinging, you know, been greedy, been selfish, and so on. And compare that to the number of times, the amount of time that you have spent in this life being positive, constructive, clear in mind, loving, kind, caring, etc and then you have some idea of what the future holds in store for you. So, uh, (laughs) you know, we always assume, you know, even if you accept rebirth, that of course we're always going to be a human being. We never consider being a chicken or a cockroach or something like that in our next lifetime. And if we think in terms of, you know, well, let's remember our past lifetimes, it's always as a human, you don't remember your past lifetime as a cockroach. So, uh, this is very strange, you know, that uh, we think that we always are human. But this is the problem. problem is that uh, we have such a strong habit of negative, self-centered, uh, unproductive way of thinking that we need to counter that. And how do you counter that? You know, if we have had millions of repetitions of selfish thoughts or of losing our temper and so on, even in this lifetime, we need to somehow build up a very positive uh, force to counteract that. So that uh, instead of uh, instinctively being, you know, getting angry or getting upset or worried or these sort of things when we face a challenging situation, we approach it automatically with patience, with uh, compassion, with care for others—all uh, of that. That takes, you know, if you, even if you speak in terms of uh, a scientific approach, you know, building new neural pathways. How do you do that? You do that by repetition. Same way that we learn to play a musical instrument, and so repeating something a hundred thousand times. Compared to the amount of times that we've lost our temper in our lifetime is you know it's just a start really but we begin to appreciate I think the importance of uh, repetition and repetition doesn't just mean you know going blah 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 if uh, we haven't uh, actually built up a state of mind then you know, just uh, training our, our mouth to repeat something 100,000 times isn't going to make very much of a transformation. The word, uh, one of the words for a sadhana, these practices that we do in Tantra in Tibetan is uh, dage. And dage is a generation of oneself. And my teacher, Serkan Rinpoche, always said it's a self-generation. It's not a voice generation. It's not a mouth generation, you know, that you're just generating your mouth into saying something uh, in these practices. You're working on your, you're improving yourself, you know, working on your mind. So this is what is involved. So if we think in terms of only 100,000 repetitions of the unshared or uncommon Ngundro, uh, preliminaries, like doing 100,000 prostrations, 100,000 uh, uh, vajrasattva, you know, purifications, etc. and we don't think in those same type of terms with the uncommon, with the common preliminaries, then we're shortchanging ourselves. You know, really, if you wanted to do it properly, you should do 100,000 meditations on precious human rebirth and, you know, the four thoughts that... Uh, Uh, turn the mind to uh, the Dharma, we have uh, precious human rebirth and death and impermanence and the sufferings of samsara and then uh, karma, you know, cause and effect. And add on top of that, of course, refuge and bodhicitta and the six paramitas, the far-reaching attitudes or perfections, renunciation, all these things we need to repeat over and over and over again, if not 100,000 times. I mean, that would be ideal, but more in order to make it really ingrained because what is the point of doing 100,000 prostrations and repetitions of, of you know, the refuge formula if refuge doesn't mean anything to us? We might as well be doing 100,000 push-ups. You know, there's not very much difference. So that state of mind is the most important thing on a deep level really understanding it really has to mean something to us and how easy it is to um minimalize the importance of refuge refuge is you know that is the gateway of the dharma so it has to mean something to us that uh, we are putting the way that I like to uh, translate it, because the word refuge sounds very passive in English, and it's not something which is passive. It's something which is very active, that we are putting a direction in our life. You know, we think in terms of the actual dharma jewel. What is the dharma jewel? It is the third and fourth noble truths, actually. It is the true stopping of all the obscurations, all the disturbing emotions, all of that stuff, full stopping of that so it never returns and the true path, the true understandings that will bring that about. That's what we're aiming for. And that has to occur on a mental continuum. The Buddhas are those who have attained that in full and they teach us the way in order to attain that. And the Sangha, the Arya Sangha are those who have attained it in part. So they show us that uh, it's possible to proceed you know, in an orderly type of fashion to achieve that dharma jewel ourselves. This is what we're talking about. This is what we are imagining when we are working on a resultant level of of uh, tantra. So refuge, absolutely necessary. This is the direction I'm working in my life. That uh, This is the meaning that I've put in my life, is to work on myself in order to clean out and get rid of all this junk that is... Uh, you know, clouding my mind, all these negative things, and build up something very positive that will get rid of it. Well, what are you doing with Vajrasattva purification medita- meditation if it's not on the basis of refuge? You know, what are you doing it for? What are you trying to attain, to attain? You know, what are you doing a mandala offering? What are you offering in terms of that? You know, well, your two networks of body, you know, of... Deep awareness and uh, positive force This is what you're offering. Everything that, you know, I dedicate this to enlightenment, you know, to the Buddhas and to all beings. Guru yoga, you know, to uh, integrate this uh, state of, you know, an enlightened body, speech, and mind is represented by the guru, as we can see in terms of the Buddha nature of the guru with ourselves to bring us to that level to inspire ourselves to this level. So without that uh, fundamental basis of uh, what we learn in Sutra, the uncommon preliminaries don't make any sense. You, know, you can't say that they have no benefit whatsoever. Of course, they have some benefit, even if we do it with uh, you know, very little going on in our minds. You know, you look at the standard stories of, you know, uh, a fly circumambulating a, a stupa on a, uh, on a turd during, uh, you know, the monsoon, and that fly builds up, you know, some positive force and so on. So, okay, you know, I mean, there's some benefit of uh, doing these practices uh, mindlessly, you know, with nothing much going on in our, in our heads. But, We're human beings, you know? I mean, we have precious human rebirth. That means we have a mind and intellect that is actually able to generate these things. You know, we have the ability to understand. We have the ability to listen to something and it makes some sort of impression. We're able to read and actually have some understanding of what we're reading. So come on, you know? This is, we can do better than a fly. So this is, you know, I think absolutely essential if uh, we're going to uh, involve ourselves in uh, Tantra practice to be serious about it. And to be serious about it, we need to do these preliminaries. Preliminaries as well. You know, my teacher used to uh, make a Circa uh, He always wanted to, uh, what should we say, Uh, He used this image of milking the meaning out of the words so that uh, you got everything out of it that uh, you could. And uh, he would always ask me the connotation of the English words that I was using to uh, translate. And uh, preliminaries, he said, not so good. Not so so good a word, actually. Preparation is better. Think of a caravan. You know, I mean images that, ha- that would be meaningful in a Tibetan con- uh, connotation. And a caravan, before you can go on a, you know, a long tr- journey, you have to prepare. In other words, you have to uh, get all your provisions of what you're going to need. You have to pack the animals you know, well. You have to really think ahead you know, of uh, the food and all these things. So preparation. Really makes far more sense than a preliminary. Preliminary, you think, well, I can forget about the preliminary, who needs that? But it's preparation for the journey. What is it that we're going to need on the journey of Vajrayana? You know, this Vajra vehicle that's going to take us all the way to uh, enlightenment. And Vajra, it's it's strong, you know, it uh, can't be broken diamond strong sometimes it's uh, translated as so all of these preliminaries that we do are intended to help us to or prepare us for the journey so we need this uh, uh, over and over again build up as uh, something that uh, is deep within us the understandings in sutra now you can ask of course you know to what level do we need it before we can uh, actually engage in a meaningful way in Tantra and uh, that's open to a lot of debate you know at least some level is about as as (laughs) precise as you can uh, get it you know that it uh, actually means something to you that's not just words that it starts to make a transformation in your life, that uh, you really appreciate. I have a precious human life. You know, look at all the positive things I have going for me, and how uh, fortunate I am. That I'm not in some horrible situation in which I'd be unable to actually work on myself. And this is what we're all what we're, we're focusing on is working on myself so that I can be of not just you know a happier person by myself but uh, that i can be of more help to others because that really really bothers me that others are uh, suffering that others are unhappy and i really feel i have to do something about it not that i'm god almighty but uh, i can at least help as best as i can and this has to be real to us not just uh, words so that uh, you know when you pass a you know, a beggar on the street or a homeless person or something like that or or whatever. You feel something. You know, not just, oh, don't bother me or we don't want to, you know, I, don't, I would rather not see this. So this has to be real to us. a precious human rebirth that uh, we don't get into this poor me, you know, uh, don't have... Uh <laughs> In Berlin, we use this example, you know, I don't have garlic sauce on my doner kebab, you know, oh, how horrible it is that you know, they're out of garlic sauce, you know, this is the worst thing <laughs> in the world <laughs> to us. Uh, obviously not that, you know, I mean, think of the positive things, not, you know, poor me and complaining all the time and that it's not going to last. So it's not that we become a fanatic, but We use our time seriously and realize that uh, it could end at any time. You know, even, you know, we don't have to think even in terms, you know, only in terms of death. But, uh, you know, who knows in terms of uh, economy, war, you know, diseases, anything could happen. So really uh, take it seriously. What's going to, you know, what's going to happen? My closest friend dropped dead, had a heart attack in the shower, you know, at age 54. Perfectly healthy, and bam, you know, just a few moments, he's dead. So this can happen at uh, any time. So these insights of uh, the uh, shared Nundro, very, very essential for, you know, sincere practice. Then, with the uncommon ones, what are we trying to uh, do? We're trying to build up more positive force and, you know, uh, try to cleanse, at least to a certain extent, the negative force, the negative uh, potential, going back to our Buddha nature factors, these two networks. So build up something positive with a prostration, cleanse, you know, try to weaken the negative force with uh, Vajrasattva practice so that uh, we can make a transformation so that uh, rather than these two networks giving rise to more and more samsara, even just in this lifetime, that they give rise to you know, something more enlightened on the path and the resultant level. So in order to have that uh, transformation take place so that uh, these two networks stop giving rise to all this, you know, trouble, and give rise to something more positive, we have to obviously build up that positive force and weaken that negative force. And not just, uh, you see, this is the problem uh, with the Dharma light, because uh, we don't want to build up that positive force just to have a better samsara you know, that's what happens. I mean, this is what karma is all about. Well, you do a lot of positive things and you don't dedicate it to enlightenment. What is it going to do? It's going to improve your samsara in the future. So I'll be richer. I'll have more friends. You know, people will be honest with me, etc. Well, very nice. But uh, that's still troublesome, you know, thinking of the disadvantages of samsara. This is one of our four thoughts that turn the mind to the Dharma. It doesn't last. And it never is enough. This type of fundamental problems that we have with uh, uncontrollably recurring rebirth. So, we want to at least dedicate that positive force so that instead of uh, going to improve samsara, it goes to contributing toward enlightenment. So, we have to have some sort of level of bodhicitta and dedication when we're doing our doing our preliminaries otherwise just make a nicer samsara and that's not what we are aiming for so then you have to ask yourself can we on the basis of dharma light not believing in rebirth yet you know thinking well maybe but you know i don't really believe in that then can we also aim for enlightenment and that we can do. I mean, that gets into the whole discussion that we'll get into later about uh, enlightenment in one lifetime. But uh, nevertheless, you know, there is that remote possibility that we can do it in one lifetime, so fine. You know, we can still think in terms of uh, uh, Dharma light, you know, this lifetime uh, prospect when we're practicing Dharma as a Westerner who doesn't quite believe in rebirth yet. So fine, but that dedication to enlightenment, you know, on the basis of bodhicitta is essential. If we want to transform these networks, the so-called collections, into enlightenment building, what will build up enlightenment. Again, you get that from the Sanskrit for the word that's translated as uh, as collection. It means something that builds if you actually look at the uh, connotation, this was pointed out to me from by uh, one very great Keishi uh, Geshe Wangchen, who was the, I mean, he's passed away, but he was the tutor of the reincarnation of uh, Ling Rinpoche, who was the uh, senior tutor of His Holiness. They pointed out that this is really what the meaning, if you go back to the Sanskrit and look at the commentaries, that it's something that builds, so it builds up either samsara or it builds up you know, liberation or enlightenment. It all depends on uh, whether you dedicate it or not, this positive force, you know, some sort of aim, some sort of goal. Pardon? Hmm? Sambara is the Sanskrit word, something that builds. So, preliminaries, very important. the most important uh, point about that is that uh, uh, we need to practice when we're going to do a ngundra, practice it in the proper order and the proper order is first the shared ngundro so don't just skip over the uh, sutra path you have to understand that this is what you are packing as your preparation for going on vajrayana and if you don't have that in your saddlebags of your yaks that you are taking on this journey. In other words, if you haven't packed your bags and put it in the trunk of your car to take with you, you know, and you haven't checked in your bags if you're going on an airplane, because you haven't packed them, when you get to, you know, your journey, when you go on your journey, you're going to be empty-handed. You're not going to have anything. So we need to make this uh, preparation. And then, with this preparation, it will make more meaning to the prostrations that we do, the vajrasattva practice that we do, and so on. And don't, you know, shortchange yourself of not packing enough clothes or not taking enough food, you know, if you're going on a long trek. You know, because in the end, what will happen is that we ourselves will suffer. We ourselves will... You know, it's very easy on uh, in Tantra practice to go off into some sort of weird fantasy land type of uh, trip with uh, all of these, uh, you know, visualizations and so on. And uh, quite easy to go, you know, a bit loony uh, with this, uh, get out of touch with reality. And we certainly don't want that. That's not going to be of any help or... We get this, you know, I'm a Milarepa, you know, and I'm such a great yogi, and, you know, we're basically just uh, avoiding facing life by (laughs) going off into this uh, beautiful fantasy land of uh, the visualization. So that also, you know, is not at all what uh, we want to do. So common preliminaries and uh, the shared preliminaries and then the uh, unshared uh, preliminaries. Then... Why don't we let that sink in for a few moments before we continue? And if we have been doing Ngru, or if we uh, think, you know, these preparatory practices, or if we uh, are thinking about doing them, try to examine, what am I doing? (laughs) Why am I doing this? What do I hope to accomplish by this? Because when we undertake doing these uh, preparatory practices, it's going to be tough. It's going to take a lot of time, a lot of effort, and it's uh, not going to be fun. You know, your legs are going to hurt, and all this sort of thing. It's going to take up a lot of time. So we're not clear why we're doing it and uh, what is going to sustain us, you know, in doing this, we're going to have a difficult time. And what you don't want to do, really, is to give up in the middle, you know, with a defeatist uh, type of attitude or think at a certain point, well, this is stupid. Why am I doing this? That's why we have this uh, word which is usually translated as secrecy. And secrecy in Tantra it doesn't mean that, ooh, you know, it's a, it's a deep, dark secret and you can't tell anybody. You know, the sort of uh, a child's secret that uh, we want to keep. I think the feeling of that word is private. You want to keep it private, what we're doing. You, know, you don't want other people to know that can open you up to uh, having other people make fun of you and other people trying to discourage you by saying what you're doing is really weird, or really stupid, and you know, why are you doing this? You don't wanna open yourself up to that. You don't need that. You have to be very clear in terms of, you know, your motivation, what I'm doing, why I'm doing this. I've shared it with my teacher. I have confidence in my teacher I've checked him out or her out. It's not just, you know, I'm going by, you know, a name. And, uh, you know, everybody else in the, in the group is going, so I have to go as well. I don't want to, you know, miss out or anything like that. But you've checked out the uh, teacher. As Sirkin Rinpoche said, you know, you don't want to be somebody that rushes out on the ice and then once you're in the middle, turns around and <laughs> checks whether the ice can hold you. Uh, but <laughs> you want to check it out first before you uh, rush into things. So, again, well, I've entered into this uh, contract, you know, this Tumsik, this close connection with the teacher. I'm going to do this and I'll keep it private, you know, other people don't really have to know. And then it becomes something sacred. And this is. Uh, uh, an important thing to have, is something that you're doing with respect. You respect what you're doing. And other people might disrespect it, but uh, they'll only disrespect it if they know what you're doing. So they don't have to know. Do it privately. Much, much better. So, as I said, if we are engaged in uh, these practices or if we're considering engaging ourselves in these practices, Think about your attitude for it. Think about what we have discussed so far for a few moments. Okay. so just to summarize what we've covered so far, so that we don't get lost in uh, our discussion here. Tantra means an everlasting continuity. So we have a continuity on the basis of these networks Positive Force, Deep Awareness, Deep Awareness concerns how our mind functions, you know, on the fullest level, of course, it means the understanding of uh, uh, Four Noble Truths, 16 aspects of the Four Noble Truths, the understanding of voidness of the Four Noble Truths, etc. But uh, on another level, it's just talking about how our mind functions, five types of Deep Awareness. We're able to take in information. We're able to see patterns, how things fit together. We're able to recognize individuality of things. We're able to uh, accomplish things, you know, to know what to do. We're able to know what things are. So you know, the basic way in which uh, the mind works, you know, this deep awareness network and the positive force network. And on the basis level, that is just going to give rise to more and more Experiences in this lifetime and future lifetimes as well. But on the path, we want that to stop giving rise to just some saric stuff and to give rise to something which is similar to the result, these Buddha figures, that we can use as a pathway to get us to the result. And on the resultant level, we, uh, these uh, networks can give rise when they become enlightenment-building to the bodies of a a Buddha and the nature of the mind being pure etc. is going to allow for that transformation to take place. And how do we make that transformation take place? Like a Tantra we have to weave together all the different uh, uh, practices that we do. And do it all together at once with uh, imagining that we are in this Buddha form which is uh, an infographics that everything that uh, we are visualizing is a representation of some sort of insight, some understanding, some state of mind that we have gained through our sutra practice four immeasurables, etc., etc. Some of the deities have, uh, these figures have six arms. Those are the six paramitas, the six far-reaching attitudes. You know, there's so many different, you know, four faces, the four body, the four kayas. All of these different things represent something. You know, it's not that, uh, you know, you want to have six arms or you want to have four arms. You know, you want to hold all these things forever in your hands. You know, this is not quite what it's all about. So this is what we are practicing. And these preliminaries are preparations. What are we going to weave together? What do we need to bring about this transformation so that our basic Buddha nature factors will not just continue to give rise to more samsara, more trouble, but they will give rise to liberation and enlightenment. So this is what we've been talking about so far. So, clear? Maybe we can invite some questions about these points. This is the the basis. Then we can go on. So we're practicing something similar to the result of what we are aiming to achieve. Let's keep our questions specific to this topic. In the afternoon, we can open it up to more general questions about Tantra. Yeah. Doesn't it, it yeah. doesn't work?
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's working. <laughs> yeah. Um one of the things um you started off with was uh making distinction between um dharma light and like the proper Dharma practice based on the understanding of rebirth. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, and also uh, you talked about having this um, gut feeling that you're really practicing and you believe in future lives. Mm-hmm. And I think, as you s- say, this is a challenge for m- many of us, at least until we really truly understand um, emptiness and make that realization. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, it's for most of us, it's quite a bit Uh, Way down the path until we get there definitely so uh, in the meantime um, What would your recommendations be to? To strengthen that belief in future lifetimes not just so it's a mental thing that you tend to believe it up here But you don't really really feel it deep down. I mean what can we as Westerners really do to? um, To make that stronger well
0: One thing is uh, to, I mean, this is the approach that I used myself, was to give it the benefit of the doubt, which means that I will assume that this is correct and then see what follows from that. If you look at uh, the uh, ways of knowing as uh, described in uh, Buddhist uh, epistemology, this is called presumption. I will presume that it is correct. I'm not really convinced, but uh, okay, then let's see what follows from that. And what follows from that is that, well, all of a sudden, here's an explanation that uh, um, allows the laws of karma to uh, be appropriate. Because you see, well, it's not just you know, ripening in this lifetime, ripening in past lifetimes. It gives some explanation and this I found very powerful for myself—that uh, uh, to explain what what happens in my life. You know, all of a sudden, I you know I go to India. I went to uh, India at the age of twenty-four, and uh, with the Tibetan community, and instantly everything fell in place. You know, within one week of arriving there and having no plans when I arrived. Somebody had given me a house to live, you know, by the Tibetans. I had made the connections with, uh, you know, people who, the the Tibetans who would uh, be my teachers and arrange everything for me. I had a Tibetan monk living with me. You know, bam, you know, one week, and it all fell in place. And it felt as though my whole life had, and I felt so comfortable, and my whole life felt like it uh, had been a conveyor belt leading to this. And it made absolutely no sense in terms of my background, in terms of my family, in terms of anything. Only possible explanation would be previous life connections with uh, all of this. So, you know, that helped me to uh, feel that this wasn't crazy what was going on. So, likewise, when uh, you look at any, any of us, you know we're not born, you know, completely, you know, blank, t- you know, cassettes. You know that uh, we are, uh, as a, an infant, even. You know some infants are very gentle, you know, and very easy to uh, take care of. They don't, you know, cry except when they're hungry, etc. And others, you know, come out of the womb angry, and you know, really, you know, all the time like that so where is this coming from you know even uh, identical twins would be very different from each other in disposition so it starts to make a little bit of sense and then you look at other things that uh, make sense like uh, um, everybody has been you know my mother well that's very difficult actually to uh, you know to consider but if you think you know well what is the benefit if you bring you know rebirth here? Is that uh, if I don't have rebirth, then I feel that I can only relate to other people who are like me. I can't really relate to you know those people on the other side of the world, let alone animals, let alone you know maybe I can only relate to people my own gender or my own religion, or all of that. Whereas uh, if you open this up in terms of past lives then the benefit of that is that it allows you to relate to anybody because nobody is set in, you know, the present form that uh, they are in. They've been everything. So giving it the benefit of the doubt, you see what follows from it. And if that makes sense, then you can say, okay, well, I can, you know, work with this. So this, I think, is, uh, you know, very, very helpful. And then, you know, just as an amusing story, I remember my favorite uncle died, and uh, I'm in India, and there's this fly that refuses to, re- you know, to leave my face, you know. You know, i constantly, you know, shooing it away. You know, I'm trying to be a good Buddhist, so I'm not going to uh, kill it or anything. And it keeps on coming back and landing on my face. And then I start to wonder, well, who is this fly? You know, maybe this is my dear uncle who died, and that's this fly now. And if I were, you know, uh, reborn as a fly, you know, well, instinctively, I'd have, you know, this connection with somebody, and I'd want to be with them. And I wouldn't, wa- yeah, I would hope that my nephew wouldn't just, you know, squash me, but uh, would welcome me. So this also helped. But I tell you, what totally convinced, what really convinced me on a gut level was knowing uh, two of my teachers in two lifetimes. You know, the uh, close relation that I had with them, you know, in their former lifetime, and the close relation that I had from them coming from their side when they were, you know, four years old. This, you know, tipped me over the, uh, you know, the dividing line, to saying, hey, you know, this must be, this must be for real. But uh, that's not an experience that most of us can have. Pardon? Can you describe, tell story about well, the story was that uh, uh, Sirkan Rinpoche, who I was very close with, I mean, he basically um, trained me, you know, in everything. Uh, he sort of felt the connection with me, and said, you know, just stay here, and you know, train me. And I translated for him, and I was with him uh, a great deal of uh, the time, not every, every day, but most days, for nine years. And uh, after he died, he was uh, found again, and uh, was brought back to uh, the household, and he had recognized himself, you know, uh, he had died, Uh, he had reformed. Buddhism in the Spiti Valley, which is a Tibetan region right on the, in India, but on the border of uh, Tibet, and uh, Buddhism had degenerated there, he uh, reinstated it, you know, restarted the monasteries in a better way, and so on, died there, and was reborn there, exactly to the day nine months after, you know, he's not going to waste time hanging out in the bardo or anything like that, (laughs) and... uh, (laughs) So, and uh, because he was uh, such a prominent teacher in the valley, most people had pictures of him in his house, and when he was old enough, he would point to, and he could speak, he'd point to the picture and say, that's me. And when uh, people came around looking for, you know, uh, people, uh, little uh, children born at the right age, uh, at the right time, you know, he ran into the arms of, you know, one of the attendants and knew him by name, you know, this sort of classic recognition of a, a tuku that it should come from the side of the tuku not from the side of the people looking for them and so they brought him back to dharamsala he never cried once about wanting to go back home or you know it doesn't that he hated his parents and they were terrible people they were wonderful people but all he wanted to do was go to dharamsala and uh, he said that you know he felt that there was somebody very important that uh, he needed to meet there and that's his holiness the dalai lama he was one of the teachers of uh, his holiness that was all that he wanted was to go there and uh when he, so he was four years old i go to meet him for the first time and the attendants say you know do you know who this is and he said don't be stupid of course i know who this is you know and from the very beginning you know completely affectionate and warm with me and comfortable with me and that was that you know from my side i wanted to be quite skeptical But from his side, you know, there was no problem. So that sort of convinced me of, uh, you know, what was going on with uh, rebirth. There's no other explanation. So anyway. Any other question? So this is how you work with rebirth. You know, it's something that, uh, as I say, See what follows from it. Presume that it is true and see what follows from it. And if what follows from it makes sense, then maybe rebirth makes sense.
2: Thank you for a good advice. I was, will just follow up the question because my impression is also that some Buddhist tradition doesn't believe in reincarnation. Like uh, I remember that my first encounter with uh, Buddhism was with the forest monks in Thailand. And Mm -hmm. I remember clearly that the monk was just talking about one lifetime and not refuting uh, different lifetimes, but saying that this is the only thing we know. And I was...
0: Well, again, I would say that uh, uh, Buddha taught with skillful means. Uh, He was invited to different households. And uh, after the meal, he was invited to teach something to the head of the household and the members of the household. And he taught different things to different people because he recognized that different people were at different levels, at different backgrounds, different dispositions. So, you know, having been a translator and been, in a sense, behind the scenes with uh, great lamas when they explained things to different people they're very different with each person, Mm. you know, in terms of, you know, one person they'll be very severe with, another they'll be very gentle with, one person they'll tell something to, and the next person they'll tell something completely different. Mm. So just because the monk explained like that to you Mm. might not be the way that he would explain to a Thai person, for Mm. example. Mm. And also, we have to consider that Buddhism went from uh, India where you already had, you know, part of the culture, this uh, idea of rebirth, to many other places, including China. And in China, they didn't have, you know, a concept of rebirth. They were into, you know, the ancestors, and, you know, you want to uh, show reverence to the ancestors, and they're still around. Well, that was completely contradictory mm. to Buddhism. Come on, you know, they, they have taken rebirth. You know, there's somebody else, don't get so attached to your ancestors but nevertheless you look at uh, chinese buddhism and you look at you know like vietnamese buddhism which uh, came from uh, you know Thich not han came from uh, china they still have reverence of the ancestors so skillful means one last question
2: On this topic of the Buddhism meeting the Western world, I have found that sometimes the idea of reincarnation for us Westerners makes us be more involved with what we were before, or what we might become in the future, instead of dealing with this life right here now. So that's one of the pitfalls that I find that we sometimes fall into. The Mm -hmm. other one is that there is a reification of the idea of I- me. I am something, and this lump of my soul is being reborn in the next life, and that so, so that we get more thinking in I- in a almost materialistic way about me and myself and my ego. Mm. And th- the way I feel more as one perspective on the idea of re- reincarnation is that. Life is reincarnating through me. It's not that I am a reincarnation, but it is life itself that is reincarnating. And I will not be the same I as I was. And life forms are changing over the history of of this planet. So, if I think that life is reincarnating through me in many different forms, in the future, uh, in the future, and in the past, that helps me from being so reified in this uh, in 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 this way, and in a way, this also helps me in the idea of bodhicitta, that since life is reincarnating through me, I can be a servant of consciousness, becoming enlightened.
0: Mm. Well, there several points from <laughs> uh, what you said. One this uh, last point is that you have to be very careful that uh, you don't lose a sense of individuality because uh, the sense of individuality uh, uh, um, is the basis for taking responsibility for what we do, that uh, I will experience the consequences of what I do. It's not just uh, some you know, general thing you know of uh, a universal mind or a universal uh, type of life so when we uh, accept and buddhism certainly accepts individuality you know it's not that we are all one big you know this uh, some of the uh, hindu ideas that you know all the oceans merge into you know all the streams merge into the big ocean we're all one with brahma it's not that but uh if you look at the um, tenant systems, they are presented in a progressive order. You don't go immediately to the most advanced level. So there is some sort of solidity at first. You want to uh, gradually gain a deeper and more subtle understanding of uh, how the self actually exists. But uh, initially, in terms of uh, uh, where does rebirth come first in uh, the graded order of the teachings, it has to do with basically cause and effect. That uh, if we act in a certain way, that uh, we are responsible for that, and we will experience the consequences of that. And even if we don't experience it in this lifetime, it's not that, you know, it expires and, uh, you know, no longer is valid, that uh, we will continue to experience that. And this ethics is the basis. So even if we think of that in terms of a solid me, nevertheless... To get that basis of ethics is essential on the Buddhist path. So that's one point. The other point that I wanted to mention, that you said, that uh, there's the danger that we become focused uh, too much on the past. You know, I'm really curious, you know, who I was in a previous lifetime. I mean, so what? But, uh, you know, even if you know, then what? Mm -hmm. But, uh, and uh, who I will be in a future lifetime. And, of course, we always think human. We don't think chicken or cockroach. But what, uh, I forget who it was, but uh, one great Indian master Mm -hmm. said, uh, uh, if uh, you look at your body, that will give you an indication of what your previous lives were. And if you look at your mind, it will give you an indication of what your future lives will be. In other words, uh, if you look at your body, and what you're experiencing, and these sort of things, you know, in your physical life. Like I was explaining, you know, what makes sense, you know, only previous lives made sense of what happened to me on a physical level of getting to India. I mean, I stayed there 29 years. I never had a problem with visa. Everybody else had a problem with visa. Staying in India, I never had a problem, you know. Where does that come from? (laughs) Well, there has to be some previous cause for that. And if you, and things don't come from no cause, you know, good luck, thank you, you know, the gods smiled on me. Uh, No, not like that. If you look at your mind of, you know, what type of thoughts do I have going on all the time, then it gives some indication of, you know, what lies ahead, the future. So, thinking in terms like, I always use the amusing example, if your mind is flitting all over the place, you know, you can't stay focused on anything. What is that indicating? You know, well, that's the mentality of a fly. That never stays, you know, in one place. It's always, you know, going around, you know, here and there. <laughs> so animal images are, are used so much in the uh, Tibetan teachings. They're very helpful. Very, very uh, helpful. You know, I looked at uh Rinpoche. I always used to uh, use this image that... Uh, You know, if I do something helpful for my teacher or for anybody, what am I, like a dog that I'm just waiting to be patted on the head? Good boy, good boy, and I'll wag my tail. (laughs) You know, you don't do it for a thanks and for a pat on the head and wagging your tail. You do it to benefit others. So these uh, images can be very powerful things that you remember. So, past and future lives, yes, you could get fascinated and absorbed into you know what was and what will be but it can also be used as a way for understanding what's happening to us now and what causes am i building up for the future thank you you're welcome so let's uh, go on whether we practice tantra in a uh, light version or in a uh, real-thing version with uh, rebirth. We still need to receive an initiation in order to uh, get uh, into uh, actual Tantra practice. And receiving an initiation or empowerment, literally the Tibetan word means to empower, and the Sanskrit word means to sprinkle, to sprinkle seeds that will grow. and water the seeds that are there already, Abhisheka in uh, Sanskrit. In order to actually receive an initiation, or empowerment, I prefer, as a translation, we need to keep vows. And Sakya Pandita, Pandita great uh, Tibetan master, said, without the vows, there's no initiation. If you haven't taken the vows consciously, not just you're there like, uh, you know, somebody bringing their pet dog or their baby. And uh, you're just there. and You have no idea what the vows are or what you're doing. You're just sort of repeating meaningless Tibetan words to you. I mean, words, it's not that the words are meaningless, but that uh, the words to us are meaningless because we have no idea what we're doing. We're just going blah, blah, blah. You haven't received the initiation. It's as simple as that, that uh, the vows are essential. And Atisha, another great uh, Indian master who uh, uh, helped to uh, you know, bring, the, bring about the new period of uh, Tibetan Buddhism, said that uh, we need, you know, as the basis for bodhisattva vows, You need some level of Pradimoksha vows. This means that uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be a monk or a nun, but uh, some sort of level of at least the five precepts. And if you look in Abhidharma, at least one of the five precepts, you know, you don't have to take all five, but something as the basis for then the bodhisattva vows. And you can't, there's no tantra vows without bodhisattva vows. And so in all of uh, classes of Tantra, as part of the initiation, there's the taking of the Bodhisattva vows. And in the two higher classes of uh, Tantra, Yoga Tantra and Anuttara Yoga Tantra, there are the Tantra vows. That's very important. That's very essential to know them and to Maintain them as best as uh, we can. That means to not consciously transgress them. If we transgress them, which inevitably happens, at least don't be happy about it. Don't say, you know, well, it was stupid what I did and I have no intention to keep them. You know, there are these various factors that need to be present in order to fully lose the vows. Otherwise, all you do is weaken them. And they can be reinvigorated, you know, re-strengthened with uh, regret, vajrasattva, these sort of uh, type of things, retaking the vows. You do that as part of daily practice, in fact, is to reaffirm your vows. So ethical basis has to be there. And now comes a problem with Dharma life, because if we look at uh, the uh, vows, One of the transgressions of the bodhisattva vows is forsaking the sacred dharma by denying that any of the scriptural teachings derive from the Buddha, such as the teachings on rebirth. So if we say, you know, rebirth is stupid, you know, you don't need that in Buddhism and so on. You know, Buddha didn't really talk about that. You are violating your bodhisattva vows. So... This is something that one has to keep in mind. That's why I said it's important to at least keep an open mind and say, okay, it's there in Buddhism. I'm not denying that it's there in Buddhism. I admit that I don't understand it yet. But I'm willing to look into it in the future when my understanding increases. Fine, no problem. Then you haven't broken your bodhisattva vows. And another transgression of the bodhisattva vows would be to hold a distorted, antagonistic attitude, usually translated as false views, but that sounds like being a heretic, which isn't really the flavor of what we're talking about. But it is not only denying one of the basic core Buddhist teachings like refuge or enlightenment, or there's any value in being constructive And you'd have to include rebirth here as well. But it's being antagonistic about it. You know, you're going to argue with anybody. You know, you're wrong. You're stupid for uh, doing that. And being very stubborn. You know, there's a whole list of uh, attitudes that uh, go with that in order to uh, be complete. So it's really hostile, negative, um, aggressive, argumentative, confrontational about it. So that means that we at least have to be what we would call agnostic about uh, this whole issue of uh, rebirth, even if we are taking these vows on the basis of uh, dharma, light. And uh, it's very clear from uh, the bodhisattva and the tantric vows that uh, we lose them, and here it doesn't even have to be complete, if you give up bodhicitta, well, that means you've developed it to a certain extent, doesn't it? You can't give up something that you haven't even developed. And so that's very clear that uh, we need to have at least some level of bodhicitta. And you have to get, you know, a lot of people confuse compassion with bodhicitta. They're not the same, not at all. Compassion is the basis for bodhicitta, it's the support for bodhicitta the wish for others to be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. But bodhicitta, supported by love and compassion and this exceptional resolve that I'm going to take this universal responsibility, you know, not just uh, I wish somebody else would do it to help others, but I'm going to take the responsibility to actually help everybody and help everybody on the... You know, not just uh, help little old ladies across the street, but uh, I'm going to help everyone to overcome the deepest suffering. And the deepest suffering is uncontrollably recurring rebirth, samsara. Not just unhappiness or our ordinary happiness. And I, am, uh, this is the support for bodhicitta. And then, as I said, bodhicitta is, you know, in order to generate a state of mind, very clear, you need to know what it is focused on and what, how is the mind taking that object. What is it doing with respect to that object? You can't meditate on anything unless you know what is the state of mind that you're trying to generate and what is it aimed at. So what is bodhicitta aimed at it is aimed at our own individual enlightenment not buddha shakyamuni's enlightenment not general vague you know enlightenment you know in general but your own my own individual enlightenment that you know there are if this becomes an interesting point when you talk about time excuse me for bringing up a side thing but i think this is relevant is that in Buddhism we speak not in terms of past, present, and future. We speak in terms of uh, not yet happening, presently happening, no longer happening. So if you speak in terms of that, tomorrow is not yet happening today. Is there such a thing as tomorrow? Yes. Yesterday is not happening today. Is there such a thing as yesterday? Does it exist? Well, I can remember yesterday. Yes, it exists. But it's not happening now. So don't think in terms of my future enlightenment. You know, that you, know, you get into some weird, uh, irrelevant way of thinking here. You know, that the future exists somewhere, you know, out there. And if you go faster than the speed of light, you'll get to the future. Uh, all of that. But... We're talking about something that has not yet happened, but which can happen. How can it happen? On the basis of the causes that can bring it about. So, that not yet happening enlightenment, my own individual enlightenment, that's what I'm aiming for. Way down the line in my mental continuum and What is the way in which my mind is taking that is that I want to achieve that. And what is pushing me toward that is love and compassion. When you speak about motivation in Buddhism, motivation, uh, that word implies what is driving you. So you have to have a goal, the aim, and you have to have a, an emotional basis that is driving you to that goal and a purpose. What are you going to do once you've achieved that goal? That's a motivation. You know, I'm going to achieve, you know, future lives because, you know, better future lives because I really don't want, you know, to be reborn as a cockroach, you know, so I really dread that. And I'm confident that there's a way to achieve that future, you know, better future lives. And what am I going to do with it? I'm going to work further toward liberation and enlightenment and helping others. I'm going to make, you know, positive use of it. That's why I want to attain it, so that I can continue on the path. So then you have a motivation. That's what motivation is talking about. So we want to achieve the enlightened state of a Buddha my own future, you know, not-yet-happening enlightenment, and I want to achieve that. Uh, what's driving me is the emotion of love and compassion and taking this universal responsibility. It's all based on equanimity, you know, that I have an equal attitude toward everyone. I don't want to just help my friends, but I want to help everybody because I see the, the equality of everyone. Everybody wants to be happy. Nobody wants to be unhappy. And what am I going to do once I've you know, reached enlightenment? You know, not just hang out in you know, some Buddha field, but uh, I'm going to work as much as possible to benefit as many beings as, as is possible, as are receptive. You know, the sun can only shine on those that are come out into the sun. You know, go into a cave and you know, don't want to see the sun. Well... Sun can't really reach them. So this type of uh, bodhicitta, you have to have that. And if you give that up, so I mean, you have to have generated it at least intellectually, at least know what it is. You know, have some sort of feeling for that. In order to give it up, so <laughs> and say, you know, this is too hard and ridiculous, I can never get there, and, you know, really discouraged, and how can I really help this horrible person over there that, you know, has done such awful things? So I'm not going to work for enlightenment to benefit everybody. And then you've given it up. Then you've given up. You know, when you say in the uh, teachings that you know how horrible it is to give up bodhicitta or to give up refuge the safe direction to give up you know this uh, close bond with the teacher that uh is can be understood on so many different levels but at least represents the enlightened state of a buddha for us you know showing the way if You give that up how uh it's described that you go to some horrible hell well, what does that mean? I mean, you can take that literally, of course, but you can also take it that, you know, as I was explaining with Safe Direction or Refuge, with that, we've put a meaning in our life. And so many of us experience that our lives are meaningless, they're going nowhere. You know, every day the same type of thing, and, you know, what am I alive for? You know just to watch more tv programs go to more movies go to i mean eat more food you know just as my teacher you know so many teachers love to use very graphic examples you know i'm just using this human body as a factory for producing waste <laughs> urine and feces that's my job I put food in and I manufacture and produce this waste. Is that all that we are using our precious human life for? And hopefully <laughs> something more than this manufacturing plant of waste. So if you give up this aim, you know, what we're aiming for and that direction that we're going in, And, you know, you say, well, the teacher, you know, there's nobody that represents that. Then what are you thrown into? You're thrown into a meaningless life again. And that is a hell. That your life is going nowhere. It has no meaning. So, you know, how horrible that is. So we don't want to give up bodhicitta but you have to have generated it before you can give it up. And then the most difficult of uh, the vows, and one that we need to be aware of, is the tantric vow. And we would transgress this uh, tantric vow of not meditating on emptiness or voidness continually is the way that it's expressed in the vow, that we give it up if we don't do that. And that is meaning every day and the usual custom is, as is you know, said, in, you know, three times in the morning, three times in the evening. So that just means really being mindful of, I prefer the word, voidness, or emptiness. So that means we have to have some understanding of that. If we don't have some understanding of that, then you really go into some sort of weird schizophrenic uh, trip that, you know, I am actually Tara, I am actually Chenrezig, you know, this big inflated ego, and you have very serious psychological problems based on that. So this understanding of voidness and to continually remind ourselves during the day and in the evening what is actually going on not only with our Tantra practice, but uh, with our ordinary lives as well, is very essential. This is probably the most difficult of the Tantric vows to keep. and One doesn't take them lightly. So, again, as His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, that uh, when we go to these initiations, you can go as what he calls a neutral observer we westerners usually call that going for the blessings but (laughs) borrowing a christian uh, term but uh it's inspiring it's uplifting to go to that but we're not really taking the vows and uh if there is a practice commitment that we're going to, you know, need to do a long practice every day for the rest of our lives. We're not really ready to do that either. So, perfectly fine, wonderful, go there for the inspiration, go there as a neutral observer, and wonderful. But to take the vow, I mean, to receive the initiation, you have to take the vows, which means you have to do it consciously. Know what you're doing and be serious about it so that is uh one point about uh the initiation and then the initiation uh also uh, i think it was one of the drigong kargyu masters that uh pointed out that uh, during the initiation you ha- need to have uh it you know the tibetan the sanskrit word is it sprinkles so Sprinkles water, so that, uh, or sprinkles seeds. So, in two senses. One is that uh, it plants seeds. To, uh, for the these networks, to transform, right? So you have to have some understanding of emptiness or voidness, and some understanding of bodhicitta with a blissful state of mind, you know, they're really happy to be there. At least some level of a conscious experience during the empowerment. And that, um, what should we say, causes the seeds that are already there in Buddha nature. It activates them to bring about this uh, transformation And through the experience, it plants more seeds. So it reinforces the network. That's what's going on in empowerment and initiation. That's what it's all about. Vows and some conscious experience during it. Plus, of course, making that uh, close connection with the spiritual teacher whom you need to have checked out very well beforehand. And even if we don't receive individual personal guidance from this teacher, fine, there are so many different types of teacher that we can have. So what is the criteria for somebody being your actual spiritual master? Is actually, if you look at the text, it's somebody from whom you receive vows, then you actually establish that, you know, actual connection with the person. But we can also have an instructor. We can have somebody who gives us a lot of information. We can have somebody that, uh, you know, we work out with in a sense, you know, like in a gym that uh, guides you, teaches you how to do, you know, rituals it teaches you all the details that we can have as well but here's this person that you know represents it to us you know let's not get into the buddhas you know the teacher is a buddha and all of that that is uh, yet another level but at least you know this is a representation of what we're trying to achieve and we make that serious commitment that connection uh, this word Tamsik, Samaya hard to actually translate what it uh, actually means but it is this it's a connection something that connects you so it can either connect you to the practice or it can uh, uh, connect you to a vow but but uh, The way that it's often used is uh, in connection with a teacher, that you have this connection which is based on incredible respect from both sides, based on respecting Buddha nature and the potential in each other, and that would make you have Be what should we say? How can I act like an idiot in front of this person? You know, how can I sit there and pick my nose and you know do all sorts of ridiculous things? Lose my temper. I'll give an example. Uh, I was a uh, one of my teachers was Yongzun Ling Rinpoche who was the uh, uh, head of the Galupa tradition and the senior tutor of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and a very formidable person. You know, most people were terrified of him. Uh, he was uh, the uh, incarnation of Ralo Tzawa, the one that brought uh, Yamantaka, this Vajrabhairava. you know, really strong energy. And uh, I mean, he was extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. When he would give uh, initiation, he would just point to all the features in the mandala building around him you know as he was describing the uh mandala this type of you know teacher and uh i used to go see him and uh sitting in his uh room you know the tibetans have these low sort of uh, couches that uh, you sit on so he was on one side i was on the other side and uh all of a sudden there's a scorpion on the floor, right in front of us. And uh, Ling Rinpoche goes, you know, in a very dramatic way, oh, a scorpion, oh my goodness. And he looks at me and he says, aren't you afraid? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I say to him, how can I be afraid in front of, you know, you, you know, you're, you're, you're Mantegra, you're Vajrabayava, how can I be afraid, in, you know, in front of you? They laughed and laughed, and then the attendant came in and put a piece of paper under the scorpion and a glass over it, and took it out as if the whole thing had been staged. Uh, <laughs> it, was <laughs> it was very, very funny. There was uh, The other <laughs> incident with him was with the Yangsi, the reincarnation. You know, I go to see him, and uh, there is uh, uh, a, a certain biscuit of cookie that I'm very, very fond of. McVitie's Digestive Biscuits. It's a British cookie. (laughs) And I go to visit him in South India. And, you know, he's a little kid. And, uh, you know, the attendant comes in with tea. They always serve you tea. And a package of my favorite biscuits. (laughs) And he just looks at me, you know, and smiles. Ha, 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 you know, (laughs) type of thing, (laughs) you know. I know who you are, type of uh, look. So, anyway, this is Ling Rinpoche, this is Tamsik, this close connection that, uh, you know, you have so much respect for the person that you couldn't go, you know, freak out that there's a scorpion, you know, in front of you. So this type of thing. So this is uh, uh, what you try to establish, at least, have that intention to establish with the teacher that is conferring the empowerment. This is the one that gives you vows. So that's really uh, important in terms of keeping the vows, you know, because I have so much respect for you, I'm not going to break the vows. And if I feel that uh, there are certain things, let's say with Pratimoksha vows, you know, that I can't keep, well, you know, I'm not going to just, you know, say to hell with it. And even with bodhicitta vows, you don't, you don't want to give that back. You know, I mean, this is for... Forever. So you have to be really very serious about that. So it means you really check out the teacher. Can I have this connection with the teacher? Are they somebody who is really going to inspire me? Or is it somebody that, you know, well, they just happen to be there and everybody's going and they have a big, you know, good name, so I'll go anyway. If that's the case, better to be a neutral observer than to really commit yourself a deep relationship with this person that even if you don't spend a lot of time with them they are an inspiring figure for us so this is an empowerment so let's end our session here and as I say whether we are practicing uh, tantra as a Dharma light practitioner just you know to improve this lifetime and You know, we really hope that we're going to be, you know, the one in, you know, trillions that is going to attain enlightenment in this lifetime. So, you know, we're going to be the lucky one, as it were. So only this lifetime or we're thinking that, you know, well, we're in there for the long term run, you know, and this is going to take a lot of time. This is not easy considering how, you know, completely messed up my mind is that it's going to take quite a while (laughs) to uh, get there. Regardless of what level we're going to enter into this adventure of Tantra, preliminaries, initiation, vows, relation with the teacher, that's essential. Okay, thank you. de newe So our first session in the afternoon will be question and answer. So here, you have an opportunity to ask anything you'd like about uh, Tantra. Thank you.